0: Let's just uh, thank the Lord for what we've uh, witnessed today. I tell you, uh, the, the kids are making their way back to uh, Jammers and Surge. All the preschoolers and elementary kids. And if they, anybody in the room wants to join, well, not anybody in the room, but, but you can, I guess. But we'll put you to work. Any of the kids want to join them over there? Um, that's awesome. I want to say uh, thank you to everybody who is serving behind the scenes. Uh, for the baptism today. I, I counted like seven different people that it takes to pull that off. So the guys in the booth and the people behind the scenes there, thank you. And make sure that you take a minute um, as we leave today. Don't rush right to the door. Just take a minute and affirm uh, those friends of ours who uh, just follow the Lord in baptism and encourage them uh, as they uh, continue their walk with the Lord. Thanks for being a part of this this morning. Uh, we started a teaching series a couple months ago talking about doubt and we said that the thing that puts all of us in the same page is that uh, all of us at some point from time to time, even if you're a Christian, even if you're, you've been a Christian for a long time, at some point along this journey, you've had, you've had doubts. You've had doubts about your faith. You've had doubts about God or maybe the way that he operates, doubts about something that you saw in the Bible or doubts about something that you experienced in the church or in life in general. Um, Before I go any further, I meant to mention that we do have a Bible app event today. So if you're on the Bible app and you'd like to follow along that way, uh, you'll find the event for this morning if we've set everything up properly. And I skipped right through that, Stan, sorry about that. Uh, If you're not a Christian this morning, maybe you're here, uh, you're not sure why you're here. You're here because it's Father's Day, you're here because there's a baptism, you're here because you thought there was a party and then you've realized that was last Sunday, Sunday. which by the way was just an awesome morning and thanks for those of you who were a part of that last week as we celebrated our 20th anniversary. If you're not a Christian, if you you are still kind of trying to figure out where you land with all of this, if you're still waiting to become a Christian um, because you've got some questions... Um, I hope that this time together this morning could be an encouragement to you uh, because if your hesitation is that you think that you need to get it all figured out before you become a follower of Jesus, before you take steps like our friends have here through the waters of baptism, you got to get rid of all your doubts. You got to get all your questions answered before be, you know, becoming a Christian. You need to know that even after you become a Christian, even a long ways down that road, there are going to be some things that just don't make sense and you will experience doubt And the question isn't, will you have doubt? The real issue is, what will you do with your doubt? So a few weeks ago, uh, in part one, we said that one thing to do with your doubts is you just bring them with you. You just carry them with you. Doubt isn't a reason to abandon Jesus. Doubt isn't a reason to abandon Christianity. Doubt isn't a reason to abandon the Bible. And it isn't even a reason to quit on the church. Doubt is is something you just carry with you. And we talked a few weeks ago about how to do that and what that looks like. I'm just going to carry my doubts with me and continue to follow Jesus. So doubt is a normal part of the Christian experience. And we've defined doubt this way for our purposes. That doubt is when what I feel obstructs what I know, when what I feel, the emotion that has surfaced because of what I see, because of what I've been told, because of what I'm experiencing, when it gets in the way of what I know to be true, that's how we're defining doubt. The issue is what do you do with that? And in part two, we looked at the story of John the Baptist, and we talked about the kinds of things that cause us to doubt, because John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus and the forebearer of Jesus, experienced doubt. What are the things then? What's that look like? What kind of things trigger that in us? Things like a new reality, when things don't look this like they used to. They just don't look the same. Sometimes it's a good environment. Sometimes it's a bad environment and a negative experience. Um, and we gave some practical suggestions about how to process that. Then in part three, we said that doubt can often feel like a barrier in our relationship with God. That doubt can feel like um, an obstruction to your relationship with God. And we use the illustration of an eclipse. How many of you were here for that message and you remember what I'm talking about? We use the illustration of an eclipse and in that illustration, we let the sun represent God and the earth represents us and the moon represents our doubt. And in a solar eclipse, the doubt comes between, our doubt comes between us and God, and our doubt casts a shadow, and we can't see God, and it seems like he can't see us. But then uh, in Psalm 13, we took, look, took, took uh, let me back up there, took a look at Psalm 13 and Psalm 40, and we said that honesty with God creates a relationship that's strong enough to withstand even the weight of doubt. So then we changed that eclipse. Did you jump ahead of me? Then we changed the eclipse, then... That... <laughs> Uh, to uh, we move the moon, we moved it to the other side of the Earth, which changes it from a solar eclipse to a lunar eclipse. And in this position, the doubt moves all the way behind us, all the way around to where you can see the sun clearly. You can see God clearly as He really is, without obstruction, and you can see the truth clearly because the doubt's behind you. And we may never remove all of our doubts, but we do have the ability to move our doubt. Into the proper place. Today we're going to continue the conversation. We're going to get specific because last time in part four, we kind of turned a corner in this conversation and we talked about possible doubt triggers because we all have doubt triggers. There are certain concepts, certain beliefs, certain ideas that when you hear them in a certain context, maybe in a sermon or you read them in a book or you come across them in a conversation, they make you pause. And you're not sure what's going on with that. You know why it's such a big deal to you? Because it doesn't seem to be a big deal to somebody else. But for you, all of a sudden, it's like, wait, what? Uh, Certain topics just make you wonder. They make you ask, really? I mean, really, whose idea was that? Or really, who says? And why? Or why do we believe that? Why is this such a big deal? Or, Or is it a big deal? Am I just making it a big deal? I don't know. Maybe it's Nothing. Sometimes these things act like doubt triggers, and they take our minds down a path that's unfamiliar and uncomfortable, and we'd rather just ignore it and look the other way, because to really face it head on and to really ask the tough questions and to really do our research and dig a little deeper might expose something that would cause us to doubt, so maybe doubt the whole thing. So sometimes we won't even go there. So I wanted to look at a couple of doubt triggers, some of the big doubt triggers, and, and, and then I want to kind of show, show you how I've addressed them uh, for me, how I've satisfied my own curiosity. Uh, maybe this will help you follow a similar process and the issues that trigger doubt in you. Or, uh, so last time we, we started with the, the doubt trigger, Jesus is the only way to God. Ever had a conversation with somebody that struggles with that, that concept, <laughs> that finds that a little bit exclusive? For many, many people, for believers and unbelievers, this, is, this has been a significant doubt trigger. So that was in uh, part, uh, I don't know, four, I think. Today, another doubt trigger, and I plan to give you one more in this series, and then we'll see where we go from there. But doubt trigger number two, I'm just calling creation. How God created and how he made the heavens and the earth. This should be about a four-hour sermon, so I hope you don't have lunch plans, because we've got a lot to cover here, because we're going we're to answer this once and for all today. No, no, no. You know what I think we should do, though? I think we should pause right now and pray before we go any further. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to celebrate our our friends and family members who are following you in baptism. Thanks for what an awesome way to start our morning together. Uh, We ask you now that you would just come upon this place, just anoint your word. I pray that uh, you'd speak to our hearts with clarity, and may our minds be open to what you have for us today. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you in Jesus' name. Today, we're dealing with this issue of creation, and I'm going to start in our examination of creation with, well, first of all, let me just ask you, ever had a conversation with somebody who doesn't claim to be a believer who has an issue with the whole creation thing? Ever had a conversation with somebody like that? How many of you have ever struggled with processing and and putting all this together yourself? Anybody? You can admit it. It's okay. All right. I'm going to start with this. I'm going to start with some questions, and we'll try to answer them. I'm going to give you some answers, and I'm going to, I hope, just, I hope you just have an open mind here this morning. So let's start off with, what does the Bible have to say about creation? Now, I know that, to be honest, we should probably start with a message about the Bible. And I thought about doing that, but we, we've done it a couple times in the last six or seven years. And if you want to listen to what we believe about the Bible, some teaching on that, you let me know, and I'd gladly point you in that direction and get you a CD or point you to our uh, an episode on our podcast. Um, the first thing I'll say about uh, the Bible, is that it is a theological history more than a scientific textbook, all right? It doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't include some things that are scientific, but that's not its primary focus, as you're going to see in just a minute. The Bible opens with this statement that you're probably familiar with in Genesis 1, verse 1, and it says this, it says, In the beginning, God... Which tells, here's the thing we need to understand. It's not really so much about the beginning. It's more about God. This is a book about God. That's what that verse is telling us. In the beginning, God. It's, this, is not a comprehensive, this is not a comprehensive scientific textbook uh, that tells us everything that science uh, would raise as questions regarding creation, for example. But it tells us about the who and the what that God made the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. The Bible is about God. History is about God. Life is about God. The Bible doesn't start, and God created you, and you're the most important thing in the universe. The Bible starts with God is and God makes, and then God makes us, and we find ourselves in relationship with God, the creator, and apart from that, we don't understand ourselves. So, in the beginning, which is a phrase that comes from a Hebrew term, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, I just need to know that. I didn't go down that path in college, but I do love to read people who are scholars in the, in the original languages. A Hebrew term, it means an indefinite period of time in the beginning, mostly because we can't comprehend. Ever heard the term eternity past? Ever heard that? It doesn't even make sense. It's, it's this weird circular thinking thing that just, it just will make your head explode. So this is a term that means in an indefinite period of time. So over an indefinite period of time, God, the God of the Bible, created. So he's a creator. And the word there is bara in Hebrew. And it's very important because bara means to create from nothing. It's the original creation. So even the most, those of us who are the most creative people have never created anything from nothing. So in the beginning, God created from nothing the heavens and the earth. It's like saying from top to bottom, you know, from beginning to end, from head to toe, everything you see. Created the heavens; that's everything above. He created the earth; that's everything below the heavens. Verse two, and it says the earth was formless and empty. That language is used in other parts of the Old Testament to, to refer to a place that's uninhabitable. Think wilderness, think desert landscape. You ever visited a place and, and, and it looked like that, and you're like, "This is not fit for human habitation." That was, that's the condition in which human life, it's just, it's not going to, it's not going to be sustainable, all right? It's not viable right now, and God created everything, and the earth was not yet ready for human life. It says, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God, that is the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the waters. He was bringing order out of chaos, he was participating in creation and preparing what God was going to make for human life. That's what the Bible tells us about our origins, that God, he he eternally exists. And at some point, he created the heavens and the earth, all that is. And the land was not yet ready for human life that he was going to make. And so then God took the ensuing days, Genesis 1 reveals uh, in all the remaining verses of that chapter, all the way into chapter 2, verse 3, that God prepared the land for human life. That's what the Bible says about the beginning of creation. That being said, next question is, what are the various Christian views of creation? I don't know how narrow your view is on this and how narrowly you kind of land on this thing, but I hope you'll give us a little bit of room here this morning to broaden the view that you might hold to uh, and just create a little bit of space. You may have heard that people disagree on what I'm going to talk about here this morning, okay? Even in churches, okay? Even in this room, I... I believe we have varying views of, of the creation account. There are lots of opinions, lots of perspectives. And for those of you who are Christian and believe the Bible and believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and there are at least, you know, there are at least six different ways that as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, we can interpret Genesis chapter one. So I'm going to give these to you. And please, I just want to ask you to stay open-minded. Let me get to all the way to the end. You can figure out where you might land on this. The first is called historic creationism. Historic creationism teaches that the earth is very old, older than human life, and that the earth is created at some point in eternity past. That's how we would say it. Then over the course of six days, God prepared the earth for human life. And then he created the man and the woman. And then the result is that they, historic creationists teach that the six days in creation are literal, but they teach that the earth is old and that humanity is young. So there's, uh, there's a difference between God created the heavens and the earth in verse 1 and then the rest of the passage. That's historical creationism traced all the way back to a man named Augustine. You may have heard of him if you've done any church history, reading about church history. The second position is young earth creationism. And that is that God made everything in six days, including the heavens and the earth. That the earth didn't exist for an indefinite period of time, even though time didn't exist, before God made the man and the woman and put them on the earth, that God created everything in six literal days. So therefore, the earth is very young, and human life is also very young, uh, and the six days of creation in Genesis 1 are very literal. That, that's young earth creationism. The third position is, is called the gap theory, and that is that the earth is very old, and there's a gap between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth as kind of a synopsis for the chap for the story. Then they would insert a great calamity that struck the earth. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was Isaiah 14 and, and Satan and his angels being kicked out of heaven. But that the earth was, that's another story, but the earth was destroyed and then God had to recreate everything uh, in Genesis 1-2. That's what uh, gap theorists tend to lean into. They would say there's a big gap one way or the other. There's a big gap between uh, maybe maybe billions of years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. The fourth is called literary framework. It says that the earth is very old, humanity is very young, and that Genesis 1 and 2 is poetry, and we're not to take it literally. That it's a poetic figure of speech. It's a figurative framework. And truthfully, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 does include poetry. It, it, just, it, it is poetic in nature, so there's some truth to that. The fifth view is day-age view. They would say that the earth is old, humanity is young. The six days in Genesis 1 are not literal days. They are extended long periods of time. Those periods of time could be hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years. Number six, there is a theistic evolution. That evolution is right, but behind evolution was God. God that God was working through the evolutionary process and that the earth is very old and that human life it, it may be younger or may be old, who knows, but God is still at work, sovereign over, working through evolutionary process and means. Those are six general categories. There may be more, but those are the six that I uh, am okay with and I believe they're consistent with what the Bible might have to say. The question is, what's the position that you're like, okay, those, now where do you land? What's the p- official position of faith community fellowship? The position of faith community fellowship, Ready? is yes. <laughs> what I mean by that is this, that we hold at Faith Community, we hold certain doctrines in what we call a closed hand. We believe the Bible is true. We believe that Jesus is God's son. We believe that there is one God who created heaven and earth. That's in the closed hand. The open hand, there are issues like how old is the earth? exactly how did he make the earth are the 24-hour days of creation literal 24-hour days those kinds of things we'll leave in the open hand meaning we will discuss them but we will not divide over them one of the worst things that can happen is when christians who love jesus and believe the bible holding all these different views about creation take their position or pick a topic, but take their position and set it forth as if it's some kind of litmus test. You know, as if everyone who disagrees with me or questions this or doubts about their position is not a faithful Christian who truly believes in the Bible. We want to avoid that kind of conflict and division. That's not necessary. I will say this though: that uh, we've had some conversations, and I've had personal conversations with uh, like the elders of our church generally speaking most of the elders and ministry team leaders in our church, I would say most but not all hold one of the first two positions historic creationism or young earth creationism um, I myself depends on the day I, I lean I lean toward historic creationism that is that I think the earth is old and that human life on the earth is very young that the six days of Genesis 1 may or may not be 24 hour days how's that for making a commitment uh, so, um, and so I don't I don't know. (laughs) Some of our elders would say the six days are literal. Human life is young and the earth is young. And you know what? We're all cool with that. To be a member of this church, to be a leader in this church, what you need to believe is that God created the heavens and the earth. If you do, that's great. We can discuss and debate, but we will not divide about the details. And you give a little bit of freedom on this issue. Uh, For for some, this may encourage you. For some, this may discourage you because you were hoping for some more solid answers on that. But for all of us, I hope it would compel each of us to study for ourselves and land at a somewhat educated position. Next question is, let's just talk about this for a minute. Are the six days of creation literal 24-hour days? Christians fight over this one like crazy. I think maybe the one thing they fight over more is, is probably translations of the Bible you know, and uh, man, we find all, we got a long list of things that we love to fight over and uh, we divide over. This is a big debate among Christians. How many of you, I mean, how many of you personally have ever engaged in a discussion with another Christian about literal or figurative days of creation? How many of you ever, with another Christian? All right, me too. How many of you got loads of clarity from that uh, discussion? Yeah, right? I know, I know. So the question is, are those days in Genesis 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, are those literal days? There are those probably in this room who would say, of course, they were 24-hour days because that's what it says. Evening and morning, there were six literal days. Others say, no, this is poetry. You can't take poetry literally. Still others who would say, well, the days are not literal, that the Hebrew word for day in Genesis 1 is one that means an indefinite period of time. It's used in Scripture and other places to mean an indefinite period of time, which is true. Next question, how old is the earth? You ready to write this down? You know now you're not getting any real answers from me, but uh, there are two basic Christian positions on this. One is young earth, and the other is, want to guess? Oh, old earth, right. Some of you remember old earth. You were there, and so that's why I understand your position on that. Those who hold a young earth, here's the thing, though. Those, they tend to be very extreme one way or the other, because those who hold to a young earth hold to a very young earth. Those who hold an old earth hold to a very old earth. Those who hold a young earth would say maybe six to 10,000 years old. Those who hold old earth would say 4.5 billion-ish years. Quite a distance between those dates. Those who hold that the earth is young, then they simply say that science is wrong. You, you would have to say that. Because scientific dating says that the earth is about 4.5 billion years old. Those who hold to a young earth position uh, would say, well, that's just wrong. We just disagree with that science. science. It's wrong. It's flawed science. And furthermore, they would say that the flood that happened in the days of Noah so compressed the topography and the geography of the earth that it looks very old because it's been through a cataclysmic event. They would also say that God made the earth mature. Think about that. They would point to Adam. And they would say that when God made Adam He made Adam as a man, not as an embryo, right? That Adam didn't develop into a man from infancy. He was made mature as a man. they would say, if God can make the heavens and the earth, then why couldn't he make the heavens and the earth mature? Because if you walked up to Adam on day two of his life, you would have seen a grown man. Like, hey, dude, I'm Todd. What's your name? Oh, I'm Adam. Oh, that's cool. How old are you now? Oh, I'm a day old now. You're pretty big for a day old. You're like 175-ish, you know? Wow. Uh, some, why couldn't God have done... The argument is, why couldn't God have done the same thing uh, with the earth? Why couldn't he have done uh, that and made it mature? Then, But then I tend to wonder, uh, what about the time that it takes for light from distant stars to travel to the earth? Do you, are you interested in these things? Because I, like, nerd out on some of this. And... In many cases, the source of the light that we see when we're looking at a distant star that can only see with a powerful telescope, that source has already burned out. The source of that light has already burned out. In other words, the light left that star on its journey to Earth, or at least a point where we could see it with a powerful telescope, you know, X number of million years ago. And the star itself actually burned out long before we were around. But the light is just now reaching us. So how does, how does a young earth position explain that? Those who hold old earth positions say, well, we sound silly when we say we just don't believe science. So we've got to reconcile the two. And then they would say that perhaps the genealogies in the Bible are incomplete and maybe they only listed the most prominent people. Maybe. And those who hold an old earth position would say that in Genesis one, where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that the word for beginning, it's that Hebrew word, indefinite period of time, It doesn't tell us the age of the earth. Here's the bottom line. The Bible isn't concerned with how old the earth is. It's concerned with God, the creator, and what he did to create and prepare the earth for human habitation, for us. The Bible's not concerned with how old the earth is. If it was, it would have told us. It's not an issue that the Bible addresses. It's not an issue that Jesus gives any clarity to. It's not an issue that the Bible is definitive on, so we have some freedom there. So I would say it's important to know, uh, to understand that human life as we know it on the earth is young. Whether or not you think the earth is old, I really think that's a secondary issue. The more important issue is how old is human life then? Because even those who are non-Christians would say, well, you know, humanity, homo sapien, men and women, you and I only show up in the fossil record and only show up in the archaeological investigation in roughly the last 10,000 years, give or take a few. So even those who are non-Christians say, well, human life as we know it is very young. And to me, that's absolutely congruent with the biblical record. Whether or not the earth is young or old, I'm not sure. The Bible's not clear on that. So it leads to my question, or to the next question. What are the problems then with atheistic evolution? Because we ought to address that. This is why it could be a four-hour sermon, so settle in. I'll give you a few. And when we're talking evolution, we're not talking, talking microevolution, okay? Microevolution, where a species has the propensity or the capacity to adjust itself to its environment over time. And Christians and non-Christians agree on microevolution, that a, a bird that lives in one climate or has been transferred into one climate or an environment, if it's transferred you know, to that place and it stays there long enough over several generations, uh, there are adjustments that a species makes to an environment. What we reject um, is atheistic macroevolution uh, that where one species becomes another species apart from God. Okay, so we reject atheistic macroevolution where God is not involved in the process. The first problem with atheistic evolution is the assumption that nothing made everything. That's the assumption, right? At no point, and you, and you, if you lean into this, you'd be like, "Well, who created God then?" That's a good question. That'll probably be the next session in the series. At no point in this world do we see something that exists and assume that it sprang from nothing. I mean, we assume that it was made by someone or something, and the more complicated it is, the more intelligent we perceive the designer to be. If you see something made out of Legos, you assume that either a child or Todd made it. If you see a a skyscraper, you assume a team of architects and engineers and subcontractors and subcontractors and tradesmen built it. But things don't come into existence by themselves. Things that are highly complex do not simply come into existence by themselves. The second problem is that atheistic evolution assumes that chaos made order, that random chaos created order, an orderly universe. Number three, that impersonal matter created personal humans. This is one that I struggle with. Because how does that which is unintelligent create intelligence? How does that which is non-conscious create that which is conscious? How does that which is non-relational create that which is relational? How does matter create mind? I don't believe there's any way to explain that apart from creator. Number four, the transitional forms that are missing from the fossil record. You know, the missing link. We're still looking for the transitional forms in the fossil record. There's species A and there's species B. There's just not a combination of that species in transition anywhere in the record. So the fossil record itself doesn't even fully support macroevolution. Another problem with atheistic secular evolution is that it's really trying to avoid hopelessness and despair. Here's what I mean by that. The assumption is then that you and I, we come from no one. We exist for no cause. When we die, we go nowhere. And out of that, we're supposed to create a meaningful, purposeful life. The problem with this is if we come from no one and nowhere, if you're going to no one and nowhere, you exist for no reason. All your feelings are merely the the crashing together of atoms and you do not really love and you do not really have compassion. You do not have joy. Your thoughts aren't really thoughts. They're the random explosion of, you know, atoms and particles of matter, and you have no soul, and you have no spirit, you're simply exclusively material. If that's true, then life is altogether without purpose. In the words of Richard Dawkins, that famous atheist, he said, life is pessimistic, bleak, cold and empty. And apart from God, I would agree with him. We've looked at various views of what the Bible says. Here's the next question. I think it's actually one of the more important ones, because the Bible says in 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 Genesis, where it begins, in the beginning, God. Then in Psalm 19, and there's some great poetry about creation throughout the Psalms. Psalm 19, verse 1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and that all that God has made are like a sermon that's pouring forth speech about the character of God, that creation itself tells us about who God is and what he's like. And then in Romans 1, Paul says that what can be known about God has been made visible through what he's made. So that God's attributes are seen in the creation. That God is creator and that creation reflects something about God. So what does creation reveal about God? I'm going to give you a list. I'm going to stand, we can show the whole list and then I'm going to kind of read through this. First thing that creation reveals is that God is eternally uncaused. That is, he existed before creation. God is eternally uncaused and existed before the creation that he made. Secondly, God is living and life comes from him third god is independent that is while the rest of creation is dependent on him god is separate from creation which leads us to god is transcendent which means he doesn't depend on creation he's separate he's above he's beyond creation then god is imminent he's actively involved in his creation he didn't create and walk away he's intimately involved then god is personal and because god's made us we are personal we have personhood we're not things we're people We have personality uh, because God made us that way and he is personal. Number seven, God is powerful. He made everything from nothing by himself. Then God is beautiful. Creation reflects the beauty of God. You don't have to look too far. God is orderly. His creation is orderly until sin enters into the equation and marred everything that God has made. Then God is good. Everything that he made, he declared to be good and he blessed his creation. That's what, those are some of the things. That's just the start of the list of what creation reveals about God. Which leads me to my, I think is my last question. What alternative is there to creation? In Romans chapter 1, I'm just going to read a few verses here. Uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and, and then five or six verses here, um, I want to offer to you what the alternatives are. And some of you might be sitting there, well, why does this matter? Did we just waste this, this 45 minutes here? Because what is the point? Like, what is the big deal? I'll tell you. Where you come from, determines why you're here and where you're going. So the question of origins is inextricably connected to the question of purpose and the purpose of meaning and the purpose of destination. So Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says uh, there are really only two alternatives. One's creation, the other is something that we would call paganism. And you might be wondering, well, what does this have to do with us? Well, you're going to see, let's read. Verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness, godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Stop. You're like, what does suppression what does suppressing the truth by their wickedness? What does that mean? It's deciding the evidence says there's a God, but I don't like that, so I reject the evidence and I choose to believe in that which is impossible. It's an act of faith against God. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. Well, how do he do that? For since the creation, I think we're, are we in verse 19, I think. Since the creation of the world, let's go to the next one, 20, I think. Yes. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities. (laughs) Let's just stop here. How do he do this? Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen. That's how we did it. Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Stop there for a second. When we see creation, we learn some things about the creator. In the same way, when you hear music, you learn something about the artist. You know, when you see a painting, you learn something about the painter. When you walk into a building, you learn something about the architect, the designer, the decorator. Verse 21. For although they knew God, see, we're created with an innate sense and ability and capacity and propensity to know and believe in God. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So they rejected all the evidence of creation. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another because, here's the key, here are the two options, they exchanged the truth, that's option one, about God. What's the truth about God? That He's a creator. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. There's one truth and there's one lie. They exchanged the truth about God, that He's creator, for the lie that there is no distinction between creator and creation. And they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. It's like end of argument. What happens when you do that? What happens when when you don't worship creator God, but you worship creation as God? When you worship created things? Here's the key. We're all worshipers. The question is, do we worship God who made us? Or do we worship things that we made? Things that we make important. Things that we make priority. Things like our possessions or our experiences. Maybe the earth, the environment, maybe the human mind, the human body. What do we worship? Who do we worship? How do we worship? The question is never will we worship. Because we will pour ourselves out. We will give ourselves to the big deal is what happens when you worship creation rather than creator. Well, it leads to a morality where there is no distinction between creator and creation. So there's no distinction between good and evil. So there's no God now that says that's wrong. That's known as postmodernism. So it's not truth or error. It's not darkness and light. It's not lies and truth. It's, it's perspective and ideology and cultural and opinion. And it kind of means we have to get rid of Jesus because he keeps saying that he's God Let's let him instead just be a good teacher and a guru and a moral example, but not God and Savior. Let's just kind of knock that down a notch. It, to worship creation rather than creator, it means that there's no distinction between God and us, that we're all kind of one in the circle. It means we don't look out to God, we look into ourselves. We look for the spark of the divine within. This is it's American spiritism that my hope is not in God, I am God. God is in me. I'm part of the divine life force and I'm part of the created order and I'm part of the cosmic energy of the world. This is the new spirituality. The alternative, obviously, according to Romans 1, is that there is God and God is separate. He is transcendent from everything that he's made. This is the foundation of a Christian worldview. This is the foundation of how we interpret reality. You will not think biblically, practically speaking, if we, if we make no distinction between creator and creation, if you worship what has been created, you you might be religious, but you'll be a religious pagan. You might even seek to be moral as you define that, but you won't know the God of the Bible. Here's what this means practically. Do you know that God made you? Do you know that you're not the result of random chance? You're not the result of an atheistic evolutionary process separate from God. You're not an accident. You were made by God, a personal God who loves you, and you were made for His purposes. Do you know that God actually has a name? Do you know that, that God saw you and I and He saw that we had, were born into sin? That our first parents bought the lie and they exchanged the truth for the lie? And the lie is that we don't need God. We can be our own God. We could could do totally fine independently, autonomously on our own. Do you know that God loved us so much and God cared for us so much that he saw that we'd made a tragic error as humans? Do you know that God came for us? He came for us. The creator God entered into his creation and he did so humbly as a man, Jesus Christ. And he did that to identify with us He did that to be tempted like we are, yet He never sinned. He never did exchange the truth for a lie. He went to the cross, and He suffered, and He died, and there He paid the penalty for our sins. And if there's no distinction between God and us, we're all just kind of in one circle together, just lumped, do you know what you miss out on? Ultimately, you're missing the Savior. If there's no one to pray to, if there's no one to help us, if there's no one who knows us, if there's no one who loves us unconditionally, then there's no Savior but That's not the truth. We come from the loving triune God of the Bible. We're made in his image and in his likeness. We're made for relationship with him, and we're made for his glory. God entered into human history because he knows us. He knew our sin, he knows our need, he knows our separation from him, he knows our weakness. He knows when we exchange the truth for a lie. He knows that we tend to worship created things rather than creator God. So he comes for us. And what we want for you is we want you to know the God of the Bible as he is creator God. Not some deity who made the world and worked through some process and then left it alone. But the God who made the world and now providentially sovereignly rules over it and he's engaged in the affairs of humanity, and he hears and he answers our prayers, and he loves you, and he cares, and he forgives sin. I'm going to close with this verse from Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. This is a snapshot of heaven in the future. It says, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Why do we worship God? It says, For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We worship the creator, why? Because we were made to worship. If we don't worship our creator, then we will worship his creation. We worship our possessions. We worship our comfort. We worship the human body. We worship experience. We worship what God has given us to enjoy and we elevate a good thing to a God thing and we become practically idolaters and pagans. The only way out of that loop is to recognize that there's creation and there's creator. And creation exists to honor, to worship, to glorify, to praise the creator. And that's the source of our deepest joy and our deepest purpose because that's exactly why we exist, to worship God. Let's pray together. Father, I just uh, thank you that you've revealed truth to us. Thank you for the revelation of scripture. Thank you for the revelation that comes to us through creation that we can walk in the truth instead of a lie. We live in a day that is, uh, it's exceedingly spiritual. But it's dominated by um, humanity and our foolish attempt. God, we acknowledge you as creator. We worship you for what you have made. But beyond that, we worship you for why you have made it. Thank you that everything that you have created points us to you and allows us to live in relationship with you. For that, God, we give you glory. I pray that we would worship you with our lives, not just our words and our songs, but with our lives as creator, doing what you've created us to do, living as you've created us to live. We want to live life to the fullest and lean into the purpose that you've created us to fulfill. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to this.